0: Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Some time ago, it's actually been quite some time ago, I can't even remember how long ago God put this on my heart. I do remember where where it all started. I was reading my bread and I, I got to Ezekiel. And when I, I went to the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, this really stirred something inside of me. And I know there's nobody in this room that can relate to me, but it talked about the old bones. And you ever, 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 ever have one of those thoughts when you're reading your Bible and you say, you just take it out of context and you say, I wonder if these old bones can ever really live again? Can I? And that the process of my thought was this. I remember all the things that I used to be able to do. Acrobats, flips. Now I don't even want to get down on the floor to pick something up. Then I look at it spiritually. I look at the challenges that I and my wife and our family faced throughout the years, the things we overcame. And I said, Lord, I wonder if those old bones can still live. But then the Lord said, well, that's about you. But what I want to share today is not about me. It's something that is hopefully going to inspire all of us. Because some of the events that I'm going to share with you, I was alive to experience. And some of the events that I will share with you we all will experience in the future together. So, I, I want to start with Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, and I'm going to read the first 14 verses of that, that book. Ezekiel writes these words The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he, he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. And he makes this comment, bones that were very dry, insinuating they had been this way a long, long time. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? Why does God ask us questions that he knows the answer to? He wants us to see through his eyes. Ezekiel said, I see, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. I I don't know, only you know. And then he said to me, this is a miracle that you're going to be part of. I want you to preach to these bones. That word prophecy could be translated preach. Preach prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin I will put breath in you and you will come to life then you will know that I am the Lord when we leave this place this morning I want you to know that he truly is the Lord sovereign almighty so I Prophesied as I was commanded, and I, as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy. To the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army. I cannot help but think as I read this verse how Paul spoke to us and said, we are saved by the foolishness of prophesying or the foolishness of preaching. Sometimes the preacher may feel like he's speaking to dead bones, but God says, preach the word. No matter how dry the situation no matter how desolate the valley, no matter how dry the bones, preach the word. Can they live? God you know. Then he tells Ezekiel what he's really, what's really taking place. Then he said, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone, and we are cut off. They're discouraged, they're despondent, they've given up hope. They think that their part in God's plan is gone. Therefore, prophesy and say to them this is what the sovereign Lord says, O oh, my people. I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. And I will put my spirit in you And you will live. And I will settle you in your own land, not a foreign land, not a land that was not given to you, but into your own land, the land that I gave to you. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Then you will know God has given promises. God has fulfilled promises in our lives. And now we know. We look back in the past, and I'm sure those Jews that were alive during the Holocaust, that were spread throughout Europe, Asia, and all over the world, for that matter, had remembered the victories of Ezra, the walls being restored. They remembered the temple being restored. They remembered Gideon and the Midianites being destroyed and their victory over the Philistines. They remembered Samson and they remembered Samuel. All these bones, all these bones Memories of the past. Just dry bones of what once was. Great men and women, spokesmen spokesmen for God. Paul writes about it in Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and ministered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced cheers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. We saw through the Old Testament how God had chosen a people and raised a people up from out of the world that were peculiar unto Him. They were His peculiar people, they were His holy nation. He had delivered them countless times and forgiven them more than that. But in roughly 33 AD, something happened that changed the course of the direction of all of their lives. We know that Jesus was the Son of God, born in flesh. The fullness of God dwelt in him bodily. He had came to save his people. He was the Messiah. He was the hope for which they'd waited. They had seen his majesty as he calmed the storms and walked upon the seas and raised the dead and healed the lepers and forgave those that were guilty. But it somehow didn't fit into their playbook. For some reason, the Jews did not see him in the way that they had pictured him. They had been told about a conquering king. They had, talked, they had been told about reigning with him. But they were only being offered something that would not even change their lives as it seemed for even a moment. They were still be under Roman impression. And they denied him. They led him to Pilate who led him to a cross and they all watched and were somewhat satisfied when he drew his last breath and he died. They had said to Pilate Let his blood be upon us and our children. Because Pilate, even a non-Hebrew, had saw in him hope. I find no fault. I find no sin in him. And you know what? The scripture says that. He had no sin. They were so desperate and angry. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Little did they know that that day they had prophesied their own judgment. For God was about to take away what he had so liberally given. Jesus himself in the 25th chapter and in in the Gospels preached about how Jerusalem was going to fall. He told his disciples, when you see Jerusalem Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee the city, for surely destruction comes. Many people don't really mention this when they talk about 70 A.D. and the destruction of 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 Jerusalem and the fall of Israel. That three and a half years before the Roman general Titus came, three and a half years before he came to destroy Jerusalem, Another Roman general had come before that. He was a general called Cestius. He also surrounded the cities of Jerusalem and was intent upon destroying it. But for some reason, Josephus says in his writings, he withdrew his armies and went back to Rome. Now the Christians that were in Jerusalem were aware of the prophecy that Jesus had given them when they saw this happen, Josephus writes that the Christians fled the cities like rats jumping off a ship. It is really believed that when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, not one Christian was among those that perished. You can look at that in the, in the way of tribulation. Some might even use that as when judgment comes, God is going to allow the church to be taken out of the way. That may be a stretch, but sometimes we need to see that in the old, there is remnants of the new. When those Roman legions came and destroyed Judea and Jerusalem in AD 70, Josephus says that more than one million 100,000 Jews perished and 100,000 were taken captive. Think of that. In that short annihilation, 1,100,000 people lost their life. They said there were no trees around to hang any more of the Jews. And their bones lay scattered on the long, on the ground. One million, one hundred thousand bodies left on the ground. I wonder if Ezekiel, in his mind, saw the great valley where all those Jews had been destroyed, wondering, Will those bones? Will Israel? ever be allowed to live again. That Jewish nation was completely obliterated. After 70 A.D., there was no Israel. Those that were not killed and were able to escape scattered throughout the entire earth, looking for refuge. The land of promise became soon Inhabited by the Arabs. And the temple, the place where the center of worship was on the face of the earth, was destroyed and laid in ruins, just mounds of rocks. These bones have been there a long time. They're very white, they're very dry. They were bones that once were filled with life. And again I say God showed Ezekiel the carnage of what once was and he asked the question can these bones live again? Some say and it would be true God only knows. See there was no human possibility for what was about to happen. There's no one that can take bones and put flesh on them and put skin on them and blow life into them. No man has that power nor ability. Neither neither has it even entered their imagination. Never in the world's history has a nation that has been utterly destroyed and annihilated and driven from its land came back to claim and conquer a land that was previously owned and become a nation. Never had it happened before. During World War II, up through the 30s and 40s, a great wrath came into Europe. A man named Hitler a heretic. I believe he was inspired by Satan himself. I know he was. He brought about the execution of six million Jews. Six million. I wonder if those Jews that were standing before Pilate, if they could have saw the result of their own judgment, if they would have changed their mind, let his blood be upon us. And our children, these were their children. Six million lost their lives. This terrible annihilation drove those in Europe from Poland and Czechoslovakia, France and Germany. Many fled to England many looked for transportation away those that stayed behind and took their chances ended up in the furnaces those Jews many of them flooded into palestine like a tsunami starting a process that once again would establish them as a world power In 1944 through 1947, during this, the war, World War II, a Jewish resistance force started to develop in Palestine with the returning Jews. For three years, from 1944 to 1947, an insurgency went on and in Palestine on May 15th 1948 the civil war transformed into a conflict between Israel and the Arab states followed by an Israeli declaration of independence on May 14th 1948 in 1948 the Jewish census I'm talking about just Jews. In 1948, the census was 806,000. That can give you the scope of influx of the Jews from around the world. Now, the Palestinian exodus occurred with more than 700,000 Palestinian Arabs and about half of pre-war Palestine the Arab population being expelled or fleeing from their homes during that insurrection. So I I looked at these figures as I I went through the different sites and I said, boy, that's really interesting because the population is 806,000. And those that had lived there and were embedded in the land were driven out and it says 700,000 were driven out. Not much difference than those that came in. What no one thought was possible, it happened. This whole event was truly orchestrated by God. But let me tell you something. I do not believe that God inspired the death of those six million Jews I don't believe he caused the death of the one million one hundred thousand Jews at the battle of Rome in 70 AD I believe he stepped back like he did with Job and said you wish not my protection I will just step back and I will let Satan have his way Satan, there's no doubt about it, was truly behind this atrocity as he was with Jom. However, during that insurrection between 1944 and 47, they hadn't conquered the whole land. Jerusalem was still in, uh, encamped by Arabs, the temple area was still out of their reach. Everything else was controlled by the Arabs. But let me tell you something, God was not done with the restoration. For there in prophecy was scripture mentioning the temple would be rebuilt and worship would be reestablished. For that to happen, that land had to fall into the hands of the Jews completely. I, I I went back and I it's amazing what you can find online. It is amazing. I wanted to do some research and I went into the Jewish virtual library. I have to get a drink. Thank you, much better. And I wanted to look at the census because God says, I'm going to raise them up. I'm going to draw them back to their homeland. So I said, okay, Alexa. (laughs) No, I didn't. It was Google this time. So the population in 1517, Jewish, I'm just talking about Jewish inhabitants now, in Palestine, 5,000. In 1517, only 5,000 Jews. In 1882, 24,000 Jews. In 1931, now we're getting closer to World War II, 174,610. In 1948, 716,710. Seven years later, 1,590,000. Ten years later, 2 million, in 1965, 2,299,000. In 2021, there is 6,943,000 Jews in Palestine. God said, I'm bringing them back. And when God gives you a promise, there's no nation, there's no government, nor the devil himself that can stop the fulfillment of his word. If he said it, it is yea and amen. Those bones were coming together with sinew and skin and flesh a great nation. (laughs) The world, can you imagine how many of you were alive in the 50s and 60s? You're going to remember this because I'm going to be talking about something that you heard on the radio that happened in 1967. Some of you were a little older than I. I was 15 years old in 1965 and 66. The world stood in awe. They saw the Air, and the Arab nations were really concerned about what was is happening. They'd had control of Palestine. Now they were being driven out and forced out. So the Arabs got together and they de- they partnered or developed an alliance with Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and they planned an attack. I'm looking at the 60s. Now, if you're good in geography, Brother Kyle, I know you are. We have Egypt on the south, we have Syria on the north, we have Jordan to the the east, and Lebanon, which runs right to the west. They were surrounded by Arab nations. Israel had been able to acquire some, how do I say it, antique aircraft? Their air force was very small in the 60s. They had minimal planes and they were refurbished planes. Egypt, however, had a much more modern, much, 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 much larger air force than Israel. And with all these things against them, being surrounded by their enemies with so little resources, but a strong will, like Brother Marty said, a will to work, they decided to stand up for what was theirs and not to surrender to what others would call inevitable. Inevitable. Got that out. Now Israel preempted the uh, Egyptian attack. Now I, I want you to look at it in in relationship to twenty twenty one. It's nothing's really changed. Iran, Egypt, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria—they're not happy. Israel's there. They've openly said that they're. Their will is to utterly destroy Israel. We have people in the, even in our, our government that would like to see that happen. But here, little David, amidst the Philistines and Goliath, decides to preemptively attack Egypt. Now, oh, this is really cool. This is, this is so much God. Do you know that in that six-day war that there are countless stories of how there was divine intervention during that battle? We went to um, Israel, me and my brother, back in the 80s, and our Israeli tour guide, we were talking about the six-day war. They actually showed us remnants of the war there. And he says, we have a song here. We sing in Israel. This land is my land. This land is your land. From the Arab border to the Arab border. From the Arab border to the Arab border. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought. And it was truly that way. But on the day they chose to attack... The Egyptians, for some unusual reason, had grounded all their planes and forbidden them, not knowing that Israel was attacking. The Jews were smart. They flowed so low to the water, it was amazing, to stay under the radar, the Egyptian radar. So here we have Egyptians grounding their forces. They're all in the airports, And here comes Israel sneaking in and they catch them off guard and they annihilate their air power. Totally devastated. Well, now you're going to remember, some of you that were my age, you're going to remember the news. The UN was there. The United Nations was in Israel. It was a buffer force between uh, Egypt and Israel, they were peacekeepers. <laughs> but for let me give you the name of this guy. I, I I want you to know who it was. UN General. This is the UN General. His name was Stan. As Egypt began to swarm from the south to the north, do you do you remember that? The UN stood down. The UN did not resist the attack of the Egyptians' forces coming from the south to the north. And when that happened on May 9th, 1967, the Syrian army came from the north as well. So the Egyptians are coming from the south, and the Syrians are coming from the north. Even before the battle was won, Israel declared their independence again. In in May 22nd, seven days later, Egypt closed the Straits of Tyran. That affected all of the supplies for Israel, especially what they needed to fight. It shut down all of their oil supplies. Now we find a small air force without any provision to run what military equipment they do have. The Arabs stood up, and I remember this as well. They said, By June 4th, we will have driven those Israelites into the sea. We will have destroyed Israel. Their alliance together, they fought against the Jews. For six days, there was heavy fighting. Now, you're not going to, anybody logically would say, well, I know the outcome of this war. But you did, it's not logical. On June 10th, Israel conquered the Golan Heights and the war ended. They were victorious. Let me give you some of the totals the death totals. Remember all the nations fighting against them? When it was all said and done, the Egyptians lost 15,000 men. Now, this was only a couple-week war. They call it the Six-Day War. Those in Jordan lost 6,000 men. The Syrians lost 1,000 men. That's 22,000 if you're adding it up in your head. There were 22,000 Arab deaths, but only 700 Jews died. Where did I hear a story like that? Uh, Oh, was it Gideon or something like that? It sounded like something that happened in the Old Testament. It sounds like God was fighting for them, and many of the soldiers recorded miraculous things happening during that that six-day war. Because God said it, it was so, and it was going to be accomplished. Now I'm going to drive it into your head this morning, because God said it, it was so, and it was going to be accomplished. God says that there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem, and worship is going to be restored, and that that body of Jews is going to receive a spirit of life. Now, I thought at first the spirit of life happened when they fought. No, I think the spirit of life enters into them, redemption, when the 144,000 Jews began to preach during the tribulation period and revival sweeps through the Arab nations. Because remember, God tells us in the book of Revelation not to measure the court of the Gentiles. God is going to be dealing solely with the Jews, and God is going to raise up a nation that is filled with his spirit. I don't see that in Israel right now. Yes, they're a nation. Yes, they're there. But I don't see that devotion that once was there. Now, when it was all said and done, what happened? What did they gain from the Six Day War? Well, they gained their independence again, they conquered the Sinai Peninsula. They got the Gaza Strip. They got the Golan Heights from Syria and the West Bank from Jordan. They weren't driven into the sea. They weren't utterly destroyed. Who's telling you the church is going to be destroyed? Oh, you're just small and weak and you're surrounded by all this enemy. But God said... I will have a bride, I will have a church, and the enemies of God will not be able to stand against it. We are called. They're still threatened today, and it bothers me. I just read in the paper about how they're trying to withhold money from a missile system, a defense system for Israel from the United States. I could see, do you know where the United States was in all this in the Six-Day War? Hi, guys, we're here. Good luck, we're for you. No one provided any intervention for Israel. No country, no people, Friend, if you think you need this nation to protect you, if you think that you need to surrender your will and service to God to survive, forget it. The world isn't going to help you. It didn't help Israel. God helped Israel. The Spirit of God helped Israel. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of God. And we are the church. Now I want to go a step further. I'm closing, by the way. My son, my grandson says it best about you. You a mean guy. <laughs> no, it's been fun. But here, let me, let me look at something here. God established, on Wednesday night, we had a, I truly enjoyed that Bible study, by the way. I like history. In, on Wednesday night, we talked about the birth of the church And we talked about how, about 100 A.D., how things started to go south for the church. The Trinity doctrine started to form. Everything was questioned. And the church entered into a period of the Dark Ages. Very little was happening from 100 A.D. until 1600 when Martin Luther stood up to the Catholic Church when the Pope tried to sell indulgences to finance a project that he was building. If you're not familiar with an indulgence, it means that you can buy your way out of purgatory. If you've got money, you can go straight to heaven. And Martin Luther, you know what, I, he was a great guy. I just wish he could have went further. He stood up and wrote his theses and wrote them and pinned them to the door. And the Reformation started. We started to see Calvin and we started to see people like Knox. Do you know there was even a guy named Sylvetus? around 1500, 1600? Guess what his revelation was? The oneness of God. He said there was no Trinity. There's only one God. Well, you know what happened to Silvitus? He was roasted alive. Because some of the other reformers, like Calvin, remember Calvinism? Calvin, even though he'd received revelation of truth, did not like the idea that someone had received something more than him and encouraged people to kill Silvitus, and they burnt him at the stake. But all through the dark ages, it was a struggle, and it just seems that the church wasn't so evident. But God said, I will have a church. I will have a bride. And in 1900, there started to be a revival. Bible students seeking the truth about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And how brave they were in the reformation of knowledge and added wisdom to the church of promises unused. And they said, let's go back. We find it in scripture that everyone that received the Holy Ghost spoke in tongues. And one of the students said, Professor, put your hand on my head and pray that I might receive the Holy Ghost. And God filled her with the Holy Ghost. She spoke in tongues. And there was a great amount of joy in her heart. And then others started to receive it. It moved to Houston. And then it went to Azusa Street. That's 1900. It's 2021. Remember how we talked about how the influx of the Jews through Israel happens so magnificently? Look at what the church has in 121 years. Look at the members of the body of Christ in the 1800s and look at the members of the church in the 20th century. We have churches in every country throughout the world. The gospel is being preached unto the whole world Humor me for just a little bit. I know this is running later, but i got to get the whole thing out. But God gave us a promise that the earth was the Lord's. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and all they that dwell therein. God hasn't taken back the earth yet. Israel took back Palestine, right? Didn't God say that this was his earth? It's not over till the final battles fought. But here John, the revelator, like Ezekiel, prophesies about a great army that God is going to raise up from the dead. Ha-ha, you didn't see that before. I didn't either. Ezekiel says, hey, listen, see all those dry bones, see all those dead things? I'm going to raise up a nation. And Jesus says to John, See all those dead bones? I'm going to take them from their grave. And I am going to raise up a nation that we can fight and take back the earth. Oh, okay, you need proof. Okay, good, I want proof. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead, those old dry bones that have turned to dust, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then Paul in Corinthians 15 says, 1 Corinthians 15.35 but someone will ask how are the dead raised? (laughs) Ezekiel said the same thing how is it going to happen? only God knows with what kind of a body will they come? Paul said how foolish what you sow does not come to life unless it dies when you sow you do not plant the body that will be but just a seed perhaps of wheat or of something else but God gives it a body as He has determined, and to each kind of seed He gives His own body. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable, it is raised eternal, it is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness. <laughs> but listen, friend. When it's raised, it's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. Listen, he says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be all changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed for the perishable must close itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come to true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. This army that he's raising up, It's not going to be like you look today. It's going to be imperishable. It's going to be eternal. It's going to have power, great eternal power. We have limited power now, but we're going to have power, great power, in that resurrected body. Now, this is where I'm going to end. I want you to see the word picture, and I want you to correlate what I've said in the first part of my sermon to the last part of what I'm saying now. Because there's a distinct relationship between the bones of Ezekiel and the bones of the church that has gone before us. Many have gone to their grave before us. Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and there before me was a white horse, and whose rider was called faithful and true with justice he judges and wages war his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God now notice what it says next verse 14 the armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen white and clean what is the white it's the righteousness of the saints this is what the saint is wearing coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword and with and with which to strike down the nations he will rule them with an iron scepter he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God almighty On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written: King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We know him to be Jesus, and we do know them that are riding on those white horses that are coming back to the earth are coming back for the last great battle that takes place in a place in Israel, because that land is land that God has claimed for Himself. Jerusalem is His city. He brings back the warriors of heaven, the saints of God riding on those horses and he defeats the enemy from every nations throughout the world. All the world will be gathered together in Megiddo Megiddo. and there God wins and he takes the owner the, the false owner the squatter who's taken possession of this world, Satan himself and he Ties him and binds him and throws him into the lake of fire for a thousand years. And he establishes his nation on earth. And that will be the church's Independence Day. Because what Adam and Eve lost through their sin will once again be restored unto God. For 6,000 years, it's not been God's possessions. It's been inhabited by those who took it because of man's disobedience. But at that day, you and I will ride back. We lost a great man last week. And I thought about this as I milled through this lesson over and over again. Ron Blank was such a close friend of mine. When I first got saved, we became friends. He stood up as my best man in my wedding. We're almost the same age. And it really hurt to hear the news. But as I thought on this lesson, I'm looking for a day not so far from right now. It could be next week. It could be this afternoon. It could be a year. But when he comes back, he'll be on the horse next to mine, maybe. And all those people in the Lord that have died, we will ride to take back what is ours. That's why the Bible tells us, be not weary in well-doing because there's an end. God has prophesied it. We've, like Ezekiel, preached it to each other. Preach to those bones. Preach the word of God. Tell them what I say because it will come to pass. That's all I have to say. Let's stand. I truly believe that I take, I just want to say this right, that this is something that God has really placed in my heart. And he wants us to know it's not just about us and our trial. It's not about the private or the sergeant or the individual in the army. It's about the whole part and the whole unit. Some of us go through things that are harder than others. Some have been given tasks that we were designed and made for. Just like there were people involved as pilots and some were involved in infantry and some in the Navy. Some were SEALs and they they suffered so much more like the airborne Rangers. But it's about where we're headed. It's about what we're going to take back. And it's about him. So yeah, you may have a bad day. But what would your sergeant say to you if you were in the service? I know. He'd say, suck it up, Sally. Because we're in warfare. We're not just here to build a home and plant a garden and feel good. We're here to take back what was lost and belongs to God and establish a righteous earth and a holy heaven. I know it's harder to say than to do. It's easy to stand up behind a pulpit and preach these things. It's another thing to be alone and to have the tears running down your face as you grieve the loss of a parent, a brother, a sister, or to watch your children stumbling because they're not serving God and thinking about the things that that are about to happen. But a good soldier always sees the victory He doesn't see the battle. He sees the flag placed high on the highest hill. And I'm gonna stop, I promise. I'll leave you with this. Don't you ever, ever doubt how great God's love for you is by the circumstances that you find yourself in. Because my Bible and your Bible tells me that he saves every tear. When you hurt, don't you think that the head of the body hurts? When you're going through a trial, do you think the head is separate from the body? He's the head of the body of the church. He knows your sorrow just like he knew sorrow. Jesus, thank you for showing us these things this morning.
1: I need to hear
0: them, Lord. I need to see that Israel's not going to be defeated. Of course not. It doesn't matter. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at two six two nine six five five one seven seven, or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.